Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Inside the Brain Of, where I will interview a movement specialist to get inside their brain and try to understand how they incorporate neurokinetic therapy into their approach to patient or client management. My name is Eric Nelson. I'm a board-certified sports chiropractor and NKT instructor. If you're listening and you're not an NKT provider, hopefully this podcast will give you some insight as to what NKT is and how you can utilize it to help you help some of your patients. Uh, make sure you check out my Facebook page, Inside Your Brain, and feel free to share that with your friends. And also note that the podcasts are available on iTunes for free as well. And so I will post the link on the Facebook page for that. Well, I have to say I took a little hiatus as I was preparing to teach my first uh, Level 2 NKT class, and it's uh, great to be back speaking with you. Uh, it was really, uh, I really enjoyed teaching this class. I had some great assistants with me. Uh, I had some great students. In fact, my wife actually took the class, so that was an interesting experience. Uh, I was very excited to have the opportunity to share my NKT knowledge with her, and that went over pretty well uh, as far as I understand it, too. <laughs> uh, and, you know, while I enjoyed teaching, I mean, it was definitely phenomenal experience. Uh, I have to say that preparation really was an amazing process as it really helped me drive home some of the level two concepts. As I was putting this together over the past few months, I realized some of my weak points and I was able to spend some time honing in on my knowledge, which ties in directly to an audio book I just actually started listening this week called The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Uh, I heard an amazing quote, and in fact, there's so many awesome quotes uh, in this book, and I highly recommend it, uh, but I, there was one that really uh, uh, touched with me, especially after my experience of preparing for my level two class, and uh, that quote is, the depth which you understand and master the basics influences how well you understand everything you learn after that. And this is, this is so key, especially when you're learning NKT. You really, really need to spend time learning the basics. You need to practice the protocols over and over and over and really get to understand the concepts, things like relational inhibition, relational compensation, therapy localization. You really need to have a really good understanding uh, of this to, to, to be successful at this technique. And if you're not, that's okay. Uh, there's plenty of people out there to help you. You know, find a, an advanced practitioner to reach out. Uh, ask a ton of questions on the scholars page. I mean, we're all here to help. We love helping. And, um, you know, if there's anything we can do, just, just ask because we really want you to get this. And, you know, I think that if I can understand it, that pretty much anybody can understand it. But um, really, like the quote says, is you have to understand and master the basics. If you're having trouble knowing where to look for compensations, for example, spend time figuring it out. You know, take a movement and really break it down. Figure out the prime mover, the synergist, the antagonist, the stabilizers, the fixators. Look at the kinetic chain relationships. Uh, make this second nature. You know, just continue to do this. So, for example, take something like hip flexion, where we know the prime mover is a psoas. You know, you should know that the synergists are the iliacus, the TFL, rec fem, the pectineus, amongst others. Uh, you should know that the antagonists are the glute max, the long head of the bicep femoris, and the semimembranosus and tendinosus, and the posterior head of the adductor magnus. You should know this because these are great places to look for compensations for you to apply your therapy localization once you find an inhibited muscle. So if you, if you find that psoas is inhibited, for example, you know you can look to iliacus, TFL, pectineus, maybe glute max, bicep femoris. Uh, these are great things that you can look for. Again, it's a great exercise to get you to learn the basics. These are definitely the basics, and repetition is key. You know, do this for hip flexion. Repeat it for other movements. If you own this, you will figure out many of your patient's problems. You need to spend time doing this. And you've got to also understand that everyone works and learns at different paces. Don't worry about anybody else, where they're at. 
Um, you need to understand where you are and where you need to be. Uh, my friends, uh, great NKT provider Sean Kitzman and Dory Miller, they talk about spending like a year after taking each level before moving on. And it, it wasn't that they weren't ready. It was that they wanted to make sure they understood everything before moving on. And again, everybody's at different levels. There's some people that come into NKT with unbelievable experience and knowledge, and they're they, you know they're way past you, they're way past me, and they're ready to move on. Not everyone's like that, so don't be afraid to spend some time and really learn the basics. You've got to practice, practice, practice. Again, figure out what works for you, and just keep in mind that it's vital that you understand and master the basics. Again, this is something I'm working on, working on. So feel free to reach out to me or to any of the instructors or anybody, uh, any of the advanced practitioners, because, again, we like to help and we want to see you successful. The students at my Level 2 class, I was so proud. Many of them, because it was a local class in New Jersey that I was able to teach, many of them have come to my review classes, and I've really got to, to, to work with them and see the dedication. It was it was very impressive, and I know some of them struggle with certain things, but they all excelled. They, they grasped a lot of the Level 2 material very well, and they are implementing it into their practices. I see a lot of their posts that they've been doing on Facebook as well. So, again, if you're, if you're hesitant about moving on, just focus on the basics. Now, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, you should know that uh, the reason I started this podcast was because there's so many incredible practitioners from all different professions that utilize NKT. And I was curious about how they incorporate NKT into their approach. And I figured that if I was curious, there must be others that are as well. And in fact, I've, re I've received some great feedback on each episode. Uh, I've made some changes to the format, and I'm constantly tweaking it. So if you have any feedback, feel free to share it with me. Um, I'm always open to suggestions, and I'm also look forward to interviewing as many NKT providers as I possibly can. So feel free to send me suggestions. People have been doing that. I mean, I've got a list of like 20 people <laughs> that I want to interview, and some people I know I've already told I'm going to interview, and hopefully uh, they're, they're being patient waiting for me to get to them. But there's so many people, and uh, I'm just so excited because we have such a great, a great group of people here. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have all different types of practitioners in the community. I've interviewed a bunch. I've got, you know, chiropractors, physical therapists, massage therapists, uh, kettlebell instructors, personal trainers. Uh, and tonight, I'm really excited to take it to the next level because I'm going to be interviewing one of the first medical doctors to actually have taken all three uh, levels of NKT. In fact, he was in my level three class, uh, so I spent some time with him then, which was very exciting. Uh, in addition, he specializes in prolotherapy. And since I don't know too much about this type of uh, treatment, I'm very uh, excited to, to learn more about it when I get inside the brain of Dr. Anais Janzi. So, hey, Anais, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, Eric? It's Anais, but yeah, close yeah. I was I was close. I told you I was going to mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had it well, like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> good. Anyways, I apologize for that, Aeneas. And um, so great. So, you know, one thing that I like to do and one some of the positive feedback uh, about the podcast is that people are really interested in the backstories of some of our practitioners, you know, how how we got to this point. So, you know, I'm always interested in, you know, I, I guess we could start off by let me asking you, you know, how and when and why, you know, why did you decide to become a medical doctor? What's What's the story there? Uh, it's not that interesting a story, really. I was just uh, in college, and I thought to myself, hey, you know what? It kind of checks all the boxes. You know, I like learning about science. Um, it's something that uh, I'd be able to continue to improve and refine on uh, as uh, as time went on. Um, I, I find medicine extremely exciting. Uh, it helps you... Uh, you know, pick up chicks, you know, all the important stuff. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, you know, so med where did you go to medical school at? Uh, NYU. NYU, nice, nice, nice. So living in New York, that must have been a good experience there. And um, 
so in medical in the medical field, there's all different specialties. Um, I know you went towards physical medicine. What what attracted you to that? Well, you know, I didn't even know that physical medicine existed until it was my second or beginning of my third year. And uh, NYU is actually pretty well known for its physical medicine program, uh, the Rusk Institute there. Rusk was one of the first uh, you know, rehabilitation guys. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I actually didn't really understand what physical medicine was until I was almost done with the residency. It's such a mixed bag of different things. Uh, you know, we do a little bit of neurology, a little bit of orthopedics, uh, a little bit of, like, physical therapy-ish type stuff. Um, the inpatient, the outpatient, it's all very different. Spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury. Um, I just knew that I liked uh, the idea of, uh, you know, in medicine, you know, they're worried about putting out the fire, you know. But, you know, what about rebuilding the house, you know, once the fire has been put out? And I like that sort of idea of, you know, um, how do we, you know, improve, um, you know, overall wellness in people. Um, so it's just been, you know, it's, it's, it, it attracted me right from the start. And, you know, I'm one of those lucky people that uh, uh, I made the right decision because, um, yeah, there really is no other field that, that I think I'd be as as happy in, um, especially, you know, just the whole aspect of dealing with chronic pain because, you know, chronic pain is something we really haven't figured out yet. You know, we, there's so many different theories um, on uh, on what causes pain, why this, why is it maintained in certain people and not others, um, and it kind of gives you license to try out all kinds of different things. You know, if someone comes to you with with diabetes, you know, you're you're going to get sued if you start, you know, treating them only with acupuncture or you know, shaking a mojo at them or something, but. You know, someone comes comes to you with with chronic pain. You know, they already tried everything. They they want the last the last ditch effort. So it it's it's a great field because it allows you to really um, you know try a little bit uh, of everything out, and that, and that's kind of what I've been doing. Excellent, excellent. Now, where did you do your uh, your residency at? At Walter Reed Army Medical Center okay. in in DC. In DC now, are you are you in the army? Yeah, I'm active duty. Um, so I've been active duty for nine years now, and uh, I've technically been in the army since for about 13 years. Um, but I was in active reserve while I was uh, in medical school, so I didn't really put on the uniform until uh, 2005. Yeah. Wow. And um, did you did you serve in Afghanistan as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, after residency, I uh, did my first um, um, my first uh, placement uh, after residency was in Lachtel, Germany. So I was there for three years, and while I was in Germany, I I, uh, I was deployed for six months to Afghanistan. Hmm. That must have been interesting. What you what what exactly did you do there? Same kind of thing, physical medicine, or were you more uh, well, you know, I was deployed as a general medical officer. Um, so, uh, you know, I was supposed to basically see all comers, but uh, the place where I was at, uh, we had around 10,000 people there. It was a pretty big base, and um, there were a lot of doctors there. Hmm. Um, so I had the luxury of being able to just kind of see the musculoskeletal um, uh, people, uh, injuries. Hmm. And I actually ran my own prolotherapy and neuroprolotherapy clinic there essentially. Everyone who came in um, got some sort of injection. Um, so it, it was actually it was actually a really good experience. I, I learned a lot and I learned that a lot of the stuff that I do is actually good for acute injuries too. Uh, which uh, you know, I would have never known before because I don't usually see acute. I usually you know just see them once they become chronic. Excellent, excellent. We'll get into prolotherapy in a few minutes here. So where where are you currently now? Uh, right now I'm living in Sacramento. Um, I'm doing a uh, – I decided to go back to school again uh, to do a fellowship in uh, interventional pain, anesthesia pain medicine. So I'm about uh, eight and a half months 
uh, into the training. I got uh, or seven and a half months. Sorry, I got four and a half months left. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm studying at, at UC Davis. So it's great. Well, what great kind, program. What kind of stuff you learn in, Yeah, what kind of stuff you learn in there? Uh, so uh, a, a lot of it is uh, you know fluoroscopy-driven procedures, so, um, you know, epidural steroid injections, facet injections, how to put in spinal cord stimulators, um, how to put in intrathecal pumps for, you know, cancer patients and, and that sort of thing, um, some ultrasound-guided procedures. But essentially what, what it allows me to do is to basically put medicine uh, anywhere that I want in the body. Um, you know, prolotherapy, most prolotherapists, do everything by landmark guidance. Uh, some people say blind, but we like to say landmark guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know that's fine for a lot. A lot of the structures in the body, it's totally fine. It works. You know, there's probably no benefit to doing it um, with with guidance in most of the body. But there are some injections that you do that you just, you know, if I, if I'm going to be injecting stem cells, you know, into someone's disc, I got to know what's in the disc, right? Or if I'm going to be injecting the right. something into into the facet joint, which is, you know, they're very small, I have to make sure that I'm in there and I'm not around the joint or, or whatever, because now you're talking about a you know an injectate that costs you know maybe six seven thousand dollars. So I just wanted to kind of you know refine the precision with which I do the injections if I need to. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop right. doing landmark guided injections. When it calls for it, I mean, I'll be able to have the the, the uh, that skill set uh, to call right. on. Excellent. That makes complete sense, actually. Now, uh, in your bio, you mentioned uh, something about uh, acupuncture. You, you've taken some courses on acupuncture. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the great things about being a doctor is that they basically let you do whatever the heck you want to do, um, <laughs> and and people don't usually question you for it. So, so uh, you know, I could probably do acupuncture and not even have taken an acupuncture class. Um, uh, but, and I, and I say this because probably licensed acupuncturists probably think to themselves, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of not fair that they're able to, to, to do this, you know, kind of like weekend courses kind of thing. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, we already know all the anatomy, you know, et cetera. Um, so we might be able to sh- shave a piece of it off. I did something called the Helms course, and it's awesome. It's great. Um, it takes like nine months uh, to complete, um, and you watch uh, like a hundred DVDs in the process. Read a couple textbooks. Um, you know, you, you take like a five-day class, and then you you go and you uh, practice what you've learned for you know a few months, and then you go back. And you take another one another five-day seminar, and, um, you know, meanwhile, you're just you know, practicing your skills. Uh, and then at the end, um, uh, they really make sure that you know what it is that, you know, they kind of fully test you. But then if you want to actually get certified, there's a there's a test that you can take. I haven't taken that yet. I'll be taking that next year. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get to be a certified, you know, medical acupuncturist. Um, but it's really opened my eyes. Uh, there's... You know, I I just love being a beachcomber of different things, you know, drawing a little bit from here, a little bit from there. It's what I like to call, you know, transdisciplinary approach to learning medicine where you don't just, you know, have a passing familiarity with things, but you actually try and master as as best you can, um, you know, all the different various fields that you're involved with. And when you do that kind of cross-training, you know, I think parallels parallels that other people wouldn't be able to see. you know, there's, have you ever, I don't know if you've heard of something called the Medici effect, but, you know, the Renaissance, you know, was basically, you know, orchestrated by the Medicis who brought in, you know, painters and sculptors and architects and scientists all into Florence at one time. And they didn't just sort of, you know, have these people got together and they didn't just, you know, talk about the weather. I mean, they actually trained each other, you know over whiskey or beer or whatever, but, but they actually trained each other, which is how you got people like Leonardo da Vinci, who, you know, the true Renaissance man knew, you know, everything about everything. Um, and I think that that's becoming more and more popular, the whole mixed martial arts thing, you know, Bruce Lee with his Jeet Kune Do, you know. Um, 
learning a little bit of everything and then combining it into a single thing because without you know really knowing what it is the people you're referring to are doing, how do you know when to when to refer a referral is appropriate? How do you you know how do you do a, you know an assessment beforehand, an assessment after, you know all that kind of stuff. So um, I like to I like to try and have my hands in a little bit of everything. Awesome, I love that. That's a great a uh, great approach, and you don't hear. Um, at least I don't hear too many medical doctors that open-minded to um, all these different techniques as well, too. So that that's pretty exciting, knowing that you and hopefully there's others like you out there, and uh, that might be you know a big future part of medicine, right? There, that's 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 pretty exciting. So awesome. yeah, well, you know, pretty much anyone who's who's a part of the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine (AOM), um, they're of that mindset. So there are definitely niches of doctors out there who. You know, we all kind of have the same passion. And, um, yeah, you know, we'll get into that more later, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, that's awesome. So so when did you first uh, learn about prolotherapy and, and, and what piqued your interest about that? Well, uh, you know, I first, first heard about prolotherapy while I was in residency, and actually it wasn't a very good introduction. Um, I remember walking down the hall and someone saying, you know, maybe – we should try prolotherapy on that patient. And there was like a, there was a, um, a visiting resident. Uh, we were doing EMGs together. We were learning EMGs, and uh, he had a very negative viewpoint of it. I remember him shaking his head and saying, "Don't do prolotherapy. That's that's nonsense." And I was like, "Well, what is prolotherapy?" And they're like, "Well, you know, you inject a solution and you basically try and make scar tissue, and that scar tissue uh, essentially makes it so that." an area that moves too much doesn't move as much anymore because you surrounded it with scar tissue. And I was like, wow, that doesn't, I mean, I could see how it might, might be appropriate in some cases, but, you know, I don't want to be making scar tissue in people. You know, what if my diagnosis is wrong? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I found out that that guy didn't know what he was talking about. Prolotherapy doesn't make scar tissue at all. It actually makes um, histologically normal tissue. It just makes more of it. So you stimulate fibroblasts to lay down fresh collagen, and it actually just makes an area, you know, that makes a, a thread into a string, a string into a rope, that sort of thing. Um, so the way I really kind of got introduced to it from, you know, reintroduced to it from, from the good side was I was having, cro- I had chronic SI joint pain since my early 20s. I tried hiking the Appalachian Trail when I was like 25, and I, I couldn't couldn't make it. I had bilateral IT band syndrome that developed and eventually my SI joint got involved. It was just, it was all over after that. And, uh, you know, I went to medical school. I had chronic low back pain. I actually went through a period where I thought I had ankylosing spondylitis. You know, you go to medical school, you diagnose yourself with everything. I had, <laughs> it turns out I'm actually HLA-B27 positive. So I really thought I had ankylosing spondylitis, but, you know, 8% of the population has H- HLA-B27 positive. So, um, but, you know, I scared myself a lot, and I thought, because low back pain in young people, that's just not normal. Now I know that's pretty normal. Um, but uh, so I was getting steroid injections um, like once every year, and that would seem to, you know, uh, do okay for me for a little while, but then the pain just kept coming back. So one of one of our our uh, staff was like, well, let's try prolotherapy. And I was like, yes, you know, why not? Let's do it. So after one treatment of prolotherapy, my back pain went away. And uh, in the last six years, I've needed one touch-up and haven't had any pain. And, right. and that's what really got me into it. And I was like, wow, you know, if you get something like that and it works on you and you know, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I've been dealing with this for 10 years and now my pain is gone, um, that'll, that'll kind of, you know, keep your curiosity a little bit. And so after that uh, experience, uh, I started doing prolotherapy on pretty much everyone who walked through the door. <laughs> And um, was it? Did you did you have to take separate courses for that? Or was it in your, part of your program? Well, I don't know if I should admit this, but my prolotherapy in the beginning probably wasn't uh, the best prolotherapy. Let me put it to you that way. I, I basically knew the concept of prolotherapy and then just applied the concept without really knowing any of the techniques in the beginning. That's how I did it. In the um, so I knew, for instance, that. You, know, you kind of want to cause trauma to an area, controlled trauma. You, I knew the solution that you're supposed to inject. And, you know, as long as I felt comfortable getting a needle to a certain area, I would just, you know, inject. 
you know, I didn't have any specific ways of doing it or nothing, you know. But here's the thing. Prolotherapy is, is very forgiving. So even though I don't recommend that people just kind of, you know, be accountable and do it, on the other hand, if you feel comfortable with a needle doing certain injections, certain things can be really easy. Doing the knee, for instance. You know, if you know where the MCL is, you know, you can inject the MCL. It's no problem. Um, you just got to know where, the, where the, the trouble areas are. But prolotherapy is so for, so forgiving that uh, I was getting good success, you know, even even back when I first started doing it. Um, so, you know, eventually, you know, I, I started looking. You know, I needed to get more resources because I just, you know, I kind of plateaued and there were certain things I just didn't feel comfortable uh, injecting. And so I found um, a DVD, some DVDs um, made by this guy, Kent Pomeroy, uh, who's since passed, but he, his, his DVDs were great. And then I attended my first AAOM conference. And then that's when I realized, okay, these are the people I want to be friends with. This is awesome. And then I started going to uh, workshops. I went to the Hackett Hemwall course, which is really the place you want to go to if you want to get trained in prolotherapy. I bought all the DVD sets that are available out there. Um, there's the Osborne set and, and then the, uh, the Jeffrey Patterson set by Hackett Hemwall. I watched all those. I went to these courses. I went to the AOM courses. And slowly, slowly, you know, built up uh, my skill set. Um, it's always, it's still a work in progress. You know, there's always, there's, you can always be better. Definitely, definitely, without a doubt. Now, you mentioned earlier when you had your clinic over, I guess, in Afghanistan, you um, had not only prolotherapy, but you mentioned neuro uh, prolotherapy. So, what, what exactly is that? So neuroprolotherapy is actually quite different from prolotherapy. And there are some people out there who contest the name neuroprolotherapy entirely. They don't even think it should, they should, think it should be called, oh, there's different names. Uh, perineural subcutaneous injections is one. I know there's a whole litany of things that there, people are trying to, to change the name to because um, people don't think you get the same kind of proliferative response necessarily. And, and the target um, isn't, the same kind of target that you have with prolotherapy. What you're targeting are superficial C fibers. Um, so there's a guy, John Liftoff, uh, in uh, New Zealand, uh, who uh, came up with this um, probably a decade ago and was working on it and kind of refining his technique. And he started finally started teaching people how to do this in like I think 2009, and uh, or maybe 2010. I was the second class that he taught in 2010 when in Ferrar, Italy. And um, uh, the beautiful thing about neuroprolotherapy is once you, just like prolotherapy, you know, there's a concept of how it works, you know, neuroprolotherapy is the same thing. And once you kind of get the, the gist of what it is you need to do, it's really easy to, to just kind of uh, sort of take off and, and, and use it in ways that, that maybe no one else has used before. Um, so, yeah, around fall of 2010, I started doing neuroprolotherapy and prolotherapy uh, combined, you know, depending on, on what I saw. Um, and neuroprolotherapy is extremely effective. Um, do you want to get into how it works and all that? Or? Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm game. <laughs> okay, so, so neuroprolotherapy, man, I, I just can't say enough about it. It's awesome. It is, it is really great, especially um, how quickly it works. Um, I mean, I've had patients in acute pain, and and they just required one injection or you know one you know, one little session of neuroprolotherapy, and the pain that never came back. I've treated myself with neuroprolotherapy. Um, I've aborted migraines with neuroprolotherapy. When I was you know in Afghanistan, I was on migraine call essentially. Um, people would just you know someone came in with a migraine, I'd get I'd get a page, and um, I come in and I would do neuroprolotherapy for the migraines. And I just kind of was winging it, but I developed a migraine protocol over there that effectively aborted around 90% of the migraines that I that I treated. Mm -hmm. um, and really, all it is is 5% uh, dextrose D5W, which is you can find in any emergency room. Um, and they're subcutaneous injections using a 27-gauge half-inch needle. You go about halfway in, so a quarter inch. is about the depth of these superficial nerves. And you inject anywhere from a half cc to a full cc. Um, for the migraine protocol, all I did was had patients take uh, the needle cap 
and point to where you know, their, their pain was the worst in their head. Try and find that one spot. And then I did check it. Okay. Wait, you know, 10 seconds. Now find the next worst spot. And they would point it out. I inject it. And that's all we did. We, we did that basically until the points went away. And they took off their sunglasses, you know, and they could look at light again. And all, all of a sudden they realized, wow, oh, Doc, yeah, my, my headache's gone. And, and that happened around 90% of the time. Um, I haven't had a chance to, to try it again since Afghanistan because I don't see people with acute migraines. I don't work in an, in an ER. But if there are doctors listening to this, it's that simple. Just have them point to it, inject it, and, and just keep traveling it, to, chasing it around the head. And I can pretty much guarantee that you're going to have success most of the time. So the way it works, uh, there are a certain subset of C-fibers out there called peptidergic C-fibers or capsaicin-sensitive C-fibers. And these fibers, these C-fibers actually serve a trophic function in the body, which means that they actually are responsible for tissue repair and regeneration, renewal. And when they aren't functioning properly, um, the that area can, can start to be susceptible to injury. Um, in chronic uh, neurogenic pain, in case of patients have chronic neurogenic pain, these, these C fibers start behaving uh, erratically so that they actually cause the tissues to become inflamed. Not that the tissues are inflamed and the C fibers feel it and then transmit that pain to the brain, but the C, the C fibers themselves actually start releasing pro-inflammatory chemicals into the intracellular milieu, substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptides. Um, and and uh, that then sets off, you know, a cascade of, of, of things, and, and, and an area becomes chronically inflamed. And we don't really have a lot of drugs that are really good at treating neurogenic inflammation. Um, now, there's a certain receptor um, on C fibers called the TRPV1 receptor, the TRPV1 receptor, or the capsaicin receptor. Now, we don't have definitive proof yet that dextrose acts on this receptor, but that's the theory. Um, more research needs to be done. But the fact that you can have such an immediate effect, it's, it's one of, it's, in my mind, it's one of, it's, it's one of the only things that I, that I can think of that can have such an immediate effect like that is, is if it works in the trp one receptor. Because what we think happens is that it shuts off the trp one receptor immediately. You stop releasing substance P and calcitonin-gene-related peptides, and within about 5 to 10 seconds, you have complete analgesia if you get, if you get the nerve in the right places. Um, now, you have to do that uh, weekly, uh, ideally. You can even do it more than that. You can do it you know, three or four times a week, you know, like I would do that to myself, but, you know, it's inconvenient for, for patients to go see a doctor three or four times a week. So you just do it weekly. Um, and it might require anywhere from three to 12 treatments, you know, depending on how chronic it's been, you know, et cetera. Um, but it's amazing. If, if I treated people, for instance, with plantar fasciitis, you know, and I'll, you know, you inject along the saphenous nerve, sometimes it requires... Um, you know, deep tibial, there's some other, you know, but you, you inject these nerves and you're basically just palpating for tenderness. Anywhere it's tender, you inject along the ports of these nerves. Then you have the patient stand up and if you got all the, if you, if you, if you got all the spots that needed to be gotten, their pain will essentially be 100% gone. And that's how you know you got a good treatment. Their pain will be completely gone. And it's like, they'll be dumbfounded. Like, what did you just do? What, what was that? No anesthetic? And there's no anesthetic in there. It's just D5W. And that, mm. that, that pain resolution, that'll last anywhere from a couple hours to a couple days. And then the pain will come back. But usually it won't be quite as bad. You kind of gave your body a little bit of a breather there. The next time they come in, you know, instead of being at a seven, they might be at a six and a half. Okay, so then you do it again. Pain goes away again. Again, it comes back a couple hours to a couple days. But again, it's a little bit less. Maybe this time it's a five and a half. And then you just keep doing that. Eventually it can... You know, it, it gets to the point where that body is now able to sort of, you know, come to terms with it and kind of do the rest of the of the, of the healing on its own. Um, and you know, it 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 works great for all kinds of stuff. You know, chronic musculoskeletal issues, um, chronic uh, nerve injury type issues. Um, I mean, 
I couldn't even give you a laundry list of all the different things that I've that I've treated with it. But you'd be surprised. I mean, I I've had patients come in with uh, pain in their chest pain after having a pulmonary embolism. There's one patient I treated like this, and I didn't know where to go. I was just like, well, where does it hurt? She's like, it's like quarter size areas right on my back. And anytime I breathe, I breathe deeply, it kills, you know. So I just went to where it hurt, pointed to it. And I was like, is this it? Yep. Injected a few times, maybe like four injections, so four cc's. Literally, her pain was gone. She was like, I haven't felt this good in months. Like, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know. It was like crazy. <laughs> Had her come in a couple weeks later. We were going to do it again. She's like, yeah, you don't need to. It hasn't come back. Uh, I mean, this is a lady. She had pain now for like three months. You know, uh, like she had a PE. She, you know, did, I don't know what I did. I wasn't deep enough to get any trigger points. It was like I'm using a half inch needle. You know, we went a quarter inch uh, in. Um, and so, yeah, I can't really explain it, but you know, visceral somatic reflex. Something I don't know. I don't know. But um, when in doubt, I mean, that's the cool thing about it. You just if it's tender, inject it. I mean, it's brainless work, really. I mean, you know, if I could teach a monkey to inject, they could do this stuff. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not rocket science, um, but it's, it's, it can be tremendously effective. Nice. Now, are you, so do you find yourself doing the neural stuff more so than the traditional? No. Uh, so it depends on, 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 uh, on what's wrong. So, um, like, for instance, for chronic SI joint pain, you know, if there's, like, laxity there, you know, I'm not going to even bother with prolotherapy. Now, John Liftoff, he would disagree. He, he uses it for everything, you know, but I guess that's what the founder has to believe, right, that his thing is the best for everything. <laughs> um, but in cases like that, then I, I like to use the deeper prolotherapy. You know, I'll get in there with my three-and-a-half-inch needle, and I'll just, you know, inject the heck out of it. Um I guess now would probably be a good time to explain how standard prolotherapy works. Um, there you go. Uh, so um, I just explained how neuroprolotherapy works. But prolotherapy um, works um, in quite a different way. So basically what you're trying to do is stimulate the body's own healing mechanism, right? So let's, let's say you've got someone who's got chronic lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow. So lateral epicondylitis is actually a misnomer because itis implies inflammation. You know, a better way to describe it is lateral epicondylosis. Osis just implies uh, chronic uh, degenerative changes. Because histologically, there's actually a difference. If you were to look at someone who has uh, lateral epicondylitis, you know, take a histological section of, of their ECRB and look at it under a microscope, you would see it, you'd see a bunch of neutrophils. You'd see evidence of, of acute inflammatory change going on. And usually, you know, most of the time when people get that kind of thing, it goes away. The body figured out what it needs to do, heals it, boom, done. But sometimes the body doesn't figure it out, or you're just left with, with um, you know, chronic pain. If you were to look at that same uh, muscle, that ECRB, you know, four or five months down the road, it's completely different histologically. You might have still the same amount of pain. It might hurt in the exact same way, but instead of having you know, dense neutrophil infiltration, now you're just going to see some scattered lymphocytes and some fraying of the tendon, um, but it's not going to look like, like acute inflammation. So it's almost as if the body's forgotten about it. It's kind of gave up, you know, saying, eh, that's, that's a lost cause. So prolotherapy, what we try and do is put, that, put the body back in that state of acute inflammation. Um, you know, and it's kind of, you know, a little bit of paradoxical thinking because most people think inflammation is bad. Well, inflammation is only bad when it's gone awry, but, you know, inflammation is great. If we, didn't even, if we couldn't inflame things, we'd never heal anything. It's an essential part of the wound healing process. Um, so what you do is you try and create controlled injury to an area. It's kind of like working out. You know, you go to the gym and, uh, you know, you do a bunch of, you know, reps, you know, bench press, whatever, squats, and you actually are tearing down muscle. When you leave that gym, you're actually weaker than you were when you, when you, when you walked in. You just tore some of your muscles, micro tears, but, but tears nonetheless. And really, you grow in the kitchen, right? You've got to eat a lot of protein, whatever, and your body is then going to repair that. And it's the repair that makes you stronger, right? So you've got to break down and then you repair. Well, the same concept is true with prolotherapy. 
you get in there and you cause inflammation, you cause controlled damage, you could do it with peppering at the needle, um, one of the, or you can do it with a hypertonic solution of dextrose. So what dextrose does is it causes um, uh, an osmotic shift to occur because you're using a hypertonic solution. So, so fluid is going to rush out of cells. Some cells are going to go into a state of deep distress. They're going to start releasing uh, cytokines. It's going to cause fibroblasts and macrophages to migrate into the area. The macrophages are going to start chewing up some of the old tissue. The fibroblasts are going to start laying down fresh new tissue. And then you have this process of repair. Um, I do think that there's a neuropolo effect that occurs with prolotherapy as well, which means that I think the sugar actually is aiding uh, this process of wound healing by affecting C fibers. Because, like you know, like I said, these C fibers serve a trophic function. They actually are responsible for tissue repair and regeneration. So you're basically healing the healers by by treating the nerves. So I think that there's two things going on. I think the dextrose does have a, a direct effect itself on these C fibers, and then there's this controlled injury that you're trying to create. Um, so if I see someone that, you know, has, for instance, like an SI joint issue, uh, and there's laxity, et cetera, you want to try and build that tissue up, right? Um, because if you don't, then the muscles are going to try and do the, the, the ligaments job. It's going to try and do the tendons job, the ligaments job. And then you get trigger points. You get myofascial pain, right? Because you're your body is now in a state of constant spasm in order to try and stabilize an area. I see this with rib problems all the time. Cost transverse ligaments of the ribs can get can get stretched, and then you get these you get a hypermobile rib. Um, you get trigger trigger points all around that rib, and you can get you can do trigger point injections to your boot in the face, but the body's saying, "Hey, buddy, this is this is what I need to be stable, you know, and I like stability, so I'm going to keep reforming these trigger points because I need them." And so you really, you know, physical therapy I don't think really addresses the problem because no matter what you do, you're going to be asking a muscle to do a ligament's job. You know, ligaments are like ropes. They're not like rubber bands. Once you damage them past a certain, you know, point, they're just going to kind of be floppy there and they're not going to be doing their job. So prolotherapy, you know, the idea is you get in there and you cause this this controlled inflammatory response. Now you're going to have uh, fresh tissue laid down, the fibroblasts, are going to lay down this fresh collagen. As collagen matures, it starts to shrink and, think, and pull things together. Myofibroblasts will also start to form in response to hypermobility and, and pull the area together. So now you've got you know, something that was loose, now it becomes tight. Mm-hmm. That makes, does that make makes sense? sense that, that does make complete sense, actually. Now, how many... I know you said with the neural stuff, a lot of times it could be pretty immediate. How long... For an SI joint, does it usually take to respond? How many treatments? Yeah, so you know, it depends on the, on the agent that you're using. Number one, uh, it depends on uh, you know how how far gone. You know, sometimes patients can have SI joint pain but not have laxity. You know, sometimes they're just stuck. You know, that's that's when I would send them to the chiropractor. You know, because maybe they just need to get to get that area moving again. But, you know, chiropractors hate it when it's too lax because no matter what they do, it just comes right back out again. You know, then they need, they need some sort of substrate, something to, to push that SI joint back into place and have it stick there, you know. So that's where prolotherapy can come in. It kind of helps produce that sort of substance for this SI joint to, to stick into, you know. So it depends on what the problem, on what the problem is. Um, if it's just some fraying and degeneration and you don't have quite laxity yet and you don't really need that sort of, you know, because to actually to actually make a, a, an area stable, you might take might take six treatments, for instance. Mm. But if you just have some minor, you know, fraying and, and degeneration, you might only need two or three. You know, for me, I only needed one treatment, and and I didn't, you know, and, and I and I did great. And that happens from time to time. But you know, like I said, it also depends on what you're injecting. You know, prolotherapy exists, you know, on a spectrum. Um, and the reason why prolotherapy really has gotten kind of come back into favor, I mean, they've been doing this since the 50s, but just kind of practicing pockets, um, was kind of, was uh, the uh, um, the resurgence of platelet-rich plasma. So platelet-rich plasma really was kind of introduced to the world by by orthopedic surgeons, I believe, 
And uh, they're like, hey, we've got this great way to like, you know, heal tissue, et cetera. Um, but it turns out PRP kind of works with the same mechanism as, as dextrose does. Um, and so we're able to kind of ride in the coattails of PRP. Um, and so now, you know, we, you know, I, my practice, you know, I, I usually start with dextrose. If that doesn't work, I might advance to PRP. If that doesn't work, you can try, you know, flat-out stem cells. You can do BMAC or bone marrow aspirate concentrate. You can take someone's fat cells, spin those down, get mesenchymal stem cells, and try and use that. There are stronger solutions of, of prolotherapy that you can use, something called P2G, which is phenol and glycerin and dextrose. Um, there's one guy, Tom Raven, he, he injects pumice uh, into people's <laughs> SI joints, which is like brown glass, right? I mean, it's like that's mm-hmm. like, it's crazy stuff right there. But, man, some of the people that get have gotten pumice injected into their SI joints, they, like, swear by it um, because all you need is, like, one treatment of that stuff. And that really is just going to, boom, you're going you're gonna to be become stabilized after that. But, you know, I wouldn't want just any prolotherapist doing that. Now, Tom Raven wrote the book on prolotherapy, so I'd be okay with him injecting pumice. But someone who's just starting out, you know, you don't want to get pumice into a vein or something like that. That's going to be bad news. Okay. Uh, uh, is, there, is there a specific patient age, type, or anything that is is better candidate for prolotherapy, or is it something that can help everyone? Uh, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of whole, of pediatric prolotherapy, but that's just because it's not I see that I see. Um, but uh, you know, it's been used for people for you know Osgood slaughters and things like that. It worked. It, I've I've done it on elderly patients. I mean, it's it's just like chiropractic, I suppose. You could you could use it on the whole, you know, the whole gamut of of, of, of ages. Excellent. Now, is there um, is there any contraindications to to doing it? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I guess it would be the same contraindications for anything. Any time you you put a needle into somebody, I mean, you wouldn't want to use you know put a needle through um, infection. You know, or like uh, if someone has, you know, active psoriasis, you probably wouldn't want to put it through that because you know, it's hard to clean that area and get all the bacteria um, off of it so that you could actually track into the, into the skin, into the tissue. Um, so there's those types of, of considerations. But then there are also just patients that aren't good candidates for prolotherapy, or, or the, the injury isn't a good candidate, not necessarily the patient, but the injury. Um, so... So if someone has a complete rupture of their ACL, for instance, or a complete rupture of the MCL, now, prolotherapy is not magic. It's not going to just create something out of nothing, right? There has to be something there for you to prolo. Right? If you get a complete tear, you, know, you need surgery or something. You know, you, you, prolotherapy can make, you know, a string out of a thread and a rope out of string, but it's not going to just create something out of nothing. So if you get a complete injury, prolotherapy is really not, not indicated. And then there's, you know, metabolic issues. You know, some people just aren't good healers. You know, you get, you got to address that stuff first. They're not eating well. They're not eating, taking enough protein. Uh, maybe they don't have enough testosterone. Um, you know, so there are metabolic considerations. Um, uh, and then, you know, just, you know, being careful of injecting uh, uh, certain areas, um, depending if, you know, you don't want to inject through tumor, you know, obvious things like that. Right. Makes sense. Definitely. Now, how about, um, now we're talking about conditions, because I see some patients, they have like maybe a, a torn labrum and this, this orthopedist doesn't want to do surgery. Um, is, pro, is prolo something that might be appropriate for them? Uh, so, you know, it depends on how torn the labrum is. You know, if you've got, if you've got a tear in the labrum that's, you know, let's say you take a piece of a piece of paper, eight by you know, an eleven, you know, and you just take, and you were to just sort of uh, scrunch it up in the middle and just sort of do a little tear in the middle and then lay it flat again, right? Everything's nice and opposed then, right? If you were to just take a a, a, a glue brush and kind of go over that area, you're going to be kind of good to go, right? But you know, if you take a scissors and you're and you're cutting it all up, all the edges, you know, making like little. Uh, uh, you know, fringes and things, and they're kind of which way floating all over the place. I mean, chances of the prolotherapy of making everything nice and 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 
and whole again isn't so great, you know. So if you've got a, a massive rotator or a, a massive, you know, biceps tendon tear and, and the, and the, um, the, the labrum is, is kind of, you know, hanging in in the joint, et cetera, you know, the chance of prolotherapy are going to make that right again. It's not, not so great. But, you know, if you've got someone who's got, um, you know, some fraying of a supraspinatus tendon, but it's still intact, yeah, sure. You know, fill that, fill that, that, uh, that up, that hypocotheria that you see on ultrasound, fill all that up with platelet-rich plasma or dextrose, whatever, and it may fill in, you know, and you may, you may be, you, you may treat the symptoms great. It, that, the MRI might not show that much improvement. Um, you know, it may or may not, um, but uh, you can, you might quite possibly get the patient pain-free and not even know that they have an injury anymore. Um, so there's not necessarily a marker like you couldn't, you wouldn't do an, a post-MRI to do a follow-up. That wouldn't be part of the protocol. Not usually. No, I mean, everyone wants to like see this, you know, the evidence of it getting better. Um, but sometimes, you know, radiographic stuff lags behind, um, right. uh, you know, actual true histological, you know, tissue improvement. Um, and, I mean, you, you see it all the time, right? MRI is just really not correlating very well with people's problems. Yeah. You, know, you, know, you take 100 people off the street that don't have any symptoms, and half of them are going to have all kinds of messed up findings. And, but they're asymptomatic. How, how is that, you know? Um, uh, I'm not trying to dodge things. I mean, I, I, I do think that prolotherapy does actually, you know, uh, Histologically change things, improve things, um, but I guess I just don't get too MRI focused, you know. Um, and to actually, there's a, a good study that came out um, uh, this past year where they actually injected dextrose into into the knee. I think this was done somewhere in South America, and they actually did um, uh, uh, they actually went in uh, arthroscopically and took samples before and after, and they stained it with methylene blue. Um, and they could actually see chondrogenesis taking place after the, after the dextrose was, was injected. Um, so we, we now have very good proof that uh, dextrose actually causes chondrogenesis. I mean, true histologic change is taking place inside the knee joint. This is just after... I think it was like two or three intraarticular uh, dextrose injections. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. Interesting. Cool. So you obviously you've been getting really good results with it, and um, it's really a, a big part of your practice now. When you're um, all said and done with your education, what what kind of plans do you have uh, there? Are you gonna go out on your own, work in a hospital? Well, I have to go back to Walter Reed for a couple of years, and I, that was sort of intentional because I wanted—I didn't want to go directly, you know, into the civilian world, fresh out of a fellowship where I was doing something that I don't normally do, um, and then have the task of trying to integrate um, my, you know, prolo stuff uh, with um, the, the interventional piece, just kind of winging it. Walter Reed is a nice, like. It's a nice way because in the army you don't have to worry about insurance reimbursements and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So if you think something works, you just do it, and no one's going to be you know saying, "Well, we're not going to pay for that. We're not going to pay for this." Um, so it's going to be a great way for me to kind of refine my skill set um, and uh, you know figure out how I'm going to you know what things I'm going to you know choose to to inject very carefully under fluoroscopic guidance and what things I'm going to choose to do blindly, how I'm going to have NKT um, and uh, SFMA, you know, the physical therapy aspect of it, continue to influence my practice, that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of how I want to talk about a little bit next, but one last question on the um, prolotherapy, as you kind of mentioned, is it covered by insurance? It's, I don't, it probably is not, is it? No, but it, is, it usually is covered by workers' comp- compensation, um, which is usually a good barometer of whether or not something really works because it's really on them. That would make the patient better. Um, so workers' comp tends to, to pay for things that they know will will make the hmm. patients better. I think it's just a matter of time before insurance companies uh, start to cover it. There was a great um, 
article by uh, or study done by uh, David Rubago was last year. Um, I think it was the May issue of Panels of Family Medicine, where there was a placebo-controlled, double-blind, you know, longitudinal study looking at prolotherapy versus saline injections for uh, chronic knee pain, and there was a definite significant um, difference between the two groups. You know, these are the kinds of studies that people are looking for. You know, prolotherapists just were, weren't very good at doing studies back in the day. You know, they just did it. They knew it worked. They didn't need the studies to prove it to themselves. Um, I mean, even our, our uh, C. Edward Cook, our Surgeon General in the 80s, was a big prolotherapist. Hmm. He tried to, to actually get it covered by Medicare, but um, it was blocked by various, various uh, lobbying groups at the time. Cool. But, well, uh, so, yeah, so let me ask you some more questions here as we're uh, kind of getting near the end. Um, so how did you come across NKT? How did that get on your radar? Well, there we got a, 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 uh, a resident in our program, Walter David Lindemann, and, uh, you know, he he first discovered it and uh, uh, went to one of David, uh, David Weinstock's courses and came back and was like, oh, man, my mind was just blown this weekend. And I was like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. And uh, so he was telling me, you know, some of the theories, and he tried it out on me, and, you know. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I, I want to try it, you know. So I signed up for a class in Tampa, level one, and and uh, I really was like, wow, this stuff is really cool, you know. Started using words like, this, you know, this is the missing link kind of thing. Um, and uh, then I took level two in New York and level three, and, and uh, yeah, I've been hooked ever since. I actually just visited David last weekend, and he continues to blow my mind. Nice. Yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing stuff. So you you know, how do you use it in your practice? Well, this that's like a fundamental. That's a, that's a very good question. So, you know, let's say someone comes in right, and they've and they come with with plantar fasciitis. Okay, great. So they've got degeneration of the plantar fascia. I'm going to treat them with prolotherapy or I'm going to treat them with neuroprolotherapy. Great. You do that, the body, there's an inflammatory change, et cetera. The, 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 uh, the plantar fascia starts to heal. The patient feels better. You think you've done your job. Great. Six months later, they come back. Hey, dog, my plantar fasciitis came back. What? Man, what? I just didn't inject maybe the right spot exactly. I don't know. Let's do it again. The same thing happens. You know, six months later, they come back, their pain is, is, is back. And and so I think what's, what David showed me is like, okay, so the real problem here, you know, it isn't that this plantar fasciitis just sort of appeared out of nowhere, right? It's that there was, what's the biomechanical reason that someone develops plantar fasciitis? So, you know, one of the cookbook things you learn in KT is, is that facilitated calves um, and inhibited glutes kind of go together. So maybe the patient has inhibited glutes and facilitated calves. Well, if you don't fix that underlying problem, right, the functional problem that probably caused the structural problem, well, then you're just going to be spinning your wheels, you know. And so, I, I mean, that, that just kind of opened my mind when I, when I, you know, I was like, yes, I mean, that is, is the key, you know. If you're not, if we're not completely insured you know, on top of both function and structure, we're, we're always going to be missing half, half the boat. You know, we have, to, we have to incorporate both of those concepts into our practice to really understand what's going on. And the same is true in the reverse. And, and David, you know, 100% agrees with me on this. You know, if someone has an MCL tear, st- structural problem, well, you might develop, you know, a facilitated adductor magnus because it, it inserts into the, the, the uh, MCL. Um, and you might then do some NKT stuff and try and get that normalized, and they might feel better for a while, but it might continue to recur because the, the, the weak link in this case, you know, isn't that there is a, a functional problem primarily. It's primarily a structural problem. Their MCL is just loose. It's not holding things in place, and now you're asking muscles to do a licking's job. There's necessary compensation taking place in order uh, for stability to occur, which is number one for the body. Right? So in cases like that, then you have to do something else. You've got to do prolotherapy, PRP, whatever it takes to stabilize that area. But if you don't do NKT with that, well, now they've developed whole new compensation patterns that might not go away even though you fix the primary problem. They may persist. You have a, a ghost of that injury that persists thereafter that might cause its own snowballing of, of, of problems. So I think, you know, 
it's, it's always important to try and attack a problem from both a structural and a functional perspective and to keep those two things in mind. What is the pro primary problem? That's what I'm always trying to think of. What is the primary problem? Is it primarily structural? Is it primarily functional? And if I can't figure it out, well, I just do both. I mean, I usually do both anyway. But, um, but what it has done is it's kind of saved some of my patients from the needle because sometimes it's so obviously functional that I don't need to do prolotherapy. I just say, hey, listen, we gotta just do this. we got to attack it functionally. If, if your pain doesn't go away, well, then we can consider doing an injection after that. Um, the patients are almost always NKT candidates, but they're not always prolotherapy candidates. But when they are prolotherapy candidates, you know, <laughs> then they really need the prolotherapy, in my opinion. Definitely. That makes sense because, um, you know, I've, I've spoken about this before. Is I, I'm getting better with my diagnosis, and I'm like, wow, this guy definitely doesn't need NKT, but he needs a hip replacement. <laughs> so yeah. what you're, saying basically, you're saying basically the same thing. You're going to do the evaluation, do it, and be like, huh, I just don't think NKT is what they need right here, and pro that, well, that, that really makes a lot of sense. Wow. Yeah, I mean, another way to look at it is, is it a hardware problem or is it a software problem, right? they they got to marry each other. Is it, stru is it structural? Is it functional? It's always it's always two sides of the same coin, right? The yin and the yang, right? Those are the two. If, if you change function, you're going to change structure. You change structure, you're going to change function. They, they're interrelated, and uh, you can't you can't treat one without being at least cognizant, conscious of what's happening with the other. Definitely, well said, and I agree 100%. That's phenomenal. Now I got to find one of you guys. Uh, so uh, before we get into that, though, I know that you mentioned the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine, and I know David uh, spoke this year. Um, how did that come to happen and and how was that well how was it well received oh yeah it was great it was absolutely great so uh you know after we found out after we you know i took the nkt class jeff gamble um one of the colonels at wall street took the nkt class um david took the nkt class we've been a member we've been members of aom for for a few years and we we wrote in to to may lou fleck the uh the uh the one to kind of Overseas and coordinates everything at the AOM. And we said, you know, we really we would think that David Weinstock would be a great addition. And um, so, so we got him in to to speak. And um, and uh, I managed to kind of weasel my way into a talk as well um, <laughs> to talk about essentially, you know, how how I have used NKT and the selective functional movement assessment piece of it together with prolotherapy, essentially what I just spoke about with you. And um, it was so well received that uh, after my lecture, uh, the president-elect came up to me and asked me to be the conference chairman for 2016. <laughs> um, and, you know, because they said, this is exactly the kind of uh, direction we want to be moving in. And, you know, I use the word transdisciplinary approach and everything in the talk. And they're like, yeah, you know, I really love that transdisciplinary. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're looking for, you know, fresh young minds that kind of can take this, you know, organization in that kind of a direction. We want you to basically come up with a, you know, with a conference that you would like to attend. And they basically gave me free reign to, to, to make it how I want it. And so David is going to be at the 2016 conference, I can guarantee that. Um, and he, awesome. he gave a workshop. Yeah, he gave a three-hour workshop. And, well, we gave it together, but <laughs> in honesty, I just kind of – stood there and, and watched David <laughs> do his magic, which is totally fine with me. Um, uh, and uh, people were blown away. You know, they're like, wow, like, this is like you get some pretty quick, immediate, you know, uh, a change. And um, I have I actually just got a phone call the other day from uh, one of the docs um, up in uh, Washington uh, who took the class, and, and he wanted to get my opinion on how I've been integrating it into my practice, and he was also blown away by it. And I, I've spoken to some other doctors that are that are also um, on board to take the NKT class, including some of the people on the board for for the AON. Oh. So awesome. I'm hoping that it's really going to start catching fire. If you can, if you can at least get the AON people in, you know, because they're the ones that are the most open-minded, you know, it's it's going to have this this trickle-down effect, I think, and more and more people are going to become aware of it. Uh, so, so yeah, to answer your question, it was awesome. it was very well received, and I think it will continue to be very well received. Oh, that's phenomenal. So now, so obviously I need to find someone from the AAON. Is there, is they have a website, I suppose? Yeah, if you go to aaoed.org um, or hackethemwall, H-A-C-K-E-T-T-H-E-M-W-A-L-L 
Um Both those organizations are big prolotherapy organizations, and they're they're almost sister organizations in a way. I mean, they're both phenomenal. Um, they uh, they both have doctor finders. So if you've completed the Hackett Hemwall courses or the AOM courses. Um, you can go there and you can put in your zip code and, and find uh, a doctor who's been certified by their program to do prolotherapy. Um, and there's, you know, all over the country you should be able to find um, a good practitioners. Uh, finding somebody who does neuroprolotherapy is a little bit more tough. They don't, as far as I know, have uh, doctor finders for that, but I think John Liftoff is working on that. Um, and his last name is spelled L-Y-F-T-O-G-T. But... Uh, there is, he has his own website now. It's, it's like, I think it's uh, Dr. Liftoff, L-I-F-T-O-F-F, is a little play on words. Um, and uh, if you just Google him, his website will come up, and, and he's got some great information on neuropolar therapy there as well, and hopefully he'll have a doctor find for you soon. Awesome. Well, I have to say, it was a very enlightening conversation tonight. Um, definitely educated me on this. I didn't really know much about it, and I feel like I know a lot more, and I feel like now I know when it's appropriate, which seems to be a lot of the times, and the neural uh, aspect sounds phenomenal. So I am definitely excited to search out some people maybe in this area and, and, and pick their brains a little bit, because it was wonderful. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me here on episode 18. So, um, so uh, yeah, thank it's you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on the on the program. Awesome, man. It was great. Uh, hopefully uh, I'll see you again in person at some point here. Uh, I'd also like to point out before we wrap up, though, that I um, I did get some great questions from uh, Level 3 NKT provider Olympia Hostler. Uh, she's been um, getting some NK, I mean, some prolotherapy treatment herself on her ankle, so she was very excited to hear this interview as well. Uh, so, again, uh, uh, thank you, and Aeneas for, uh, I think I said that right that time. Uh, thanks for joining me here on episode 18. A couple quick announcements. I'll be teaching level one in September in Detroit. That seminar is a go. So if you haven't signed up and you're interested, please go ahead and do that ASAP. Uh, I'll be in Arizona for a level one in October and as well as a level one in Atlanta in October and up in Seneca Falls by New York Chiropractic College in November. And I just set up another class in New Jersey, a level one in December. Uh, so if you have not taken NKT, there are plenty of opportunities. Also, uh, we have some other great instructors uh, as well, Kathy Dooley, Perry Nicholson, uh, uh, Brock Easter will be teaching up in Montreal. Uh, Len Ursha will be teaching soon in Kansas City. Uh, so please um, you know, take a look at the neurokinetictherapy.com website under upcoming seminars uh, and make sure you, you find the class there. Again, if you are an NKT provider and you're on the scholars page and you're, you're, you're quiet, you're shy, you're not, you know, feel free to reach out and, and, and speak with someone because I know a lot of the advanced practitioners like helping out. We want you to succeed. As always, your feedback is uh, much appreciated, so feel free to send me a message through Facebook or, um, or my email address, which is cairorehab at hotmail.com. Uh, again, be sure to like the Inside the Brain Facebook page. So thank you for joining me here on Episode 18, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.